0: Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our Academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts.
1: Hello, my name is Stephen Schaefer and I'm very excited to bring to you what I think will be a wonderful conversation about an interesting topic. This time, our guest is Dr. Neil Langridge. Dr. Langridge is Director of Clinical and Rehabilitation Services at AECC University College, which is located in Bournemouth, UK. We invited him to the podcast because he was the primary author of a paper that was recently published in Musculoskeletal Science and Practice. The title of the paper was, Portfolios in Practice, Developing Advancing Practice Within a Musculoskeletal Competency-Based Model. As always, we'll link to the paper in the show notes. So, without any further delay, let's get to the interview. Dr. Langridge, welcome to the podcast. How are you today?
2: I'm really well. It's uh, great to be here, and thank you very much for the invitation.
1: Well, you are very welcome. As soon as I saw this manuscript, I knew I wanted to have you on the show. This is a favorite topic of mine, if I may say so.
2: Terrific. Good to know.
1: And with that as our quick and general introduction, I'd like to start by asking a very basic question. Why is it that we should care about how a profession, whether that's physiotherapy or some other profession, determines whether or not they're graduates, new graduates, experienced graduates? are continuing to grow over time and to learn within the context of that chosen profession?
2: Yeah, that's a great opening question. And it boils down to the service that we offer our patients, the assurance we offer our patients. And that assurance essentially is around making our practice as contemporary as possible. And science and the literature and and the services and the models and the strategies and the information and the knowledge And how we translate that changes so quickly that one of the prerequisites to be a good functioning, assured clinician is to ensure that, A, that you maintain that critical awareness of contemporary practice, B, that you are reflective in that model, so you don't just develop experience, you develop expertise, and C, that you're able to translate new information for the benefit of your patients. And the only way that you're ever really going to give yourself and that patient some assurance is to have a system by which you can, in some ways, test yourself or have that validated in a way that further answers those questions, but therefore sets further questions for you to develop towards. So we never get to an end point as clinicians, we're always growing, there is no finish. There is no, I've now achieved everything. And therefore, making sure that this is part of normal day to day practice has to be a prerequisite of a contemporary clinician.
1: I really love how you contextualize that answer. And I think maybe the thing that I like most about it was the part where you said, Our job is to bring benefit to our patients. I say all the time, if we are not helping patients, then what are we doing? It is the entire purpose of our profession. This being the AOPT podcast, obviously, I hold a specific bias towards the post-professional education that an organization like AOPT offers, and for me personally, that had a lot to do with the fact that if you compare my skill set before I did a fellowship to after, and I've certainly learned in other venues as well, but I felt way more effective and efficient as a clinician, and I think back to my personal shortcomings as a professional, or maybe the reflection of shortcomings in the education system that I just learned by virtue of going through the required steps. But as I think back to it, I sometimes feel kind of bad about the services I gave when I was a young professional. And you know, over the last 20 years, just really growing and learning and becoming a better physiotherapist, a better healthcare professional, has for me brought the true joy and satisfaction that comes with, again, going back to that point, bringing benefit to my patients.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I look back on my 30 years and relive some of the, not necessarily the interventions, but maybe the beliefs around what those interventions could or shouldn't or should do. Yeah, and and I reflect back and think, well, much of that was wrong and, and, and that's part of growth. However, the enthusiasm and the awareness of trying to do the best by that patient, if I think back about myself as a young clinician, it's okay to have to grow and, and, and things change. But the way that it was applied with enthusiasm and interpretation meant that many of the contextual effects of that meant that the interventions, irrespective of my misunderstanding or, or misinterpretation of potential mechanistic outcomes, meant that still, there was still application of that interaction and that therapeutic alliance. It's just that my understanding of what can be potentially helpful in what context has changed. So we should always give ourselves freedom and not worry about that because that's the same for any clinical practice that is in process of development.
1: I think that's a great answer and I couldn't agree more. And moving a little bit closer to the paper here, per the title that we mentioned in the introduction, Mm. this is about portfolios. And for me personally, or perhaps I should say professionally, I currently live in a jurisdiction, and I've lived here for four years, and it's the first jurisdiction that I've ever been required to keep a portfolio in, so I know that I was introduced to that as something new, and I had to read about it and see what their definition and expectations were for creating and maintaining that portfolio and I think it might be helpful for our audience if you could do the same. Can you describe what is a portfolio and potentially describe it, I guess as it relates to trying to demonstrate that continuing competence within the profession.
2: Yeah, of course. And and I think it's probably easier to relate it to the current practice here in the UK, hence the development of the paper. And it's still very much in some ways, certainly in physiotherapy in its infancy, there is a requirement to continue with a portfolio for your professional registration. And that is a baseline of CPD, so continuing professional development, and ensuring that you have remained relatively contemporary within the frameworks that you work in. And then there is the portfolio that we are referencing in the paper, which is about moving towards an advanced practitioner, showing competency and capability at level seven, so master's level learning across four key pillars of practice and they've been identified in the UK as research, education, leadership and clinical practice. And so to move towards advanced practice and to gain that advanced practice standard, there are two opportunities for individuals. One is a taught route master's degree and the second is which is very much in development, is the portfolio route whereby you're using your experiences of a day-to-day working practice, but using those experiences and critically evaluating them within the sphere of those four pillars, which although they are defined as pillars, they are very much intertwined. So the easiest way for me to describe it is through maybe a case study lens. So to develop your portfolio, you may have a case within low back pain. And you would then reflect on that case at level seven critical thinking. So that would require you to assess the literature that supports the assessment and interventions that you apply through that patient. You might then assess some of the educational principles that you applied to that patient. And you might use that case as an educational example with students. Again, very much within a reflective practice model. From a leadership perspective, that level of low back pain, that problem with low back pain could be something that you inform a service redesign. So you've gained awareness of a change in policy or practice or or the literature, and you've applied that across a whole population that you serve or look after or you lead. So you can use one single case study to provide a range of pieces of evidence that would support level several thinking within a portfolio um, level of practice. Now to validate that, you need the appropriate level of supervision. So that requires a supervisor who has the appropriate skills and knowledge to assess your interpretation across those four pillars and A, to critically uh, analyze it with you, help you take learning points from that, but also make sure that it is at master's level interpretation across those areas To validate that for you. So you you can have a portfolio which you build for yourself. That is your own self-portfolio that you just keep a record of all the things that you've done. And that is probably enough for registration. But moving into advanced practice, you're going to need that external validation. And that external validation is the difference between the two.
1: I really like that last point about the external validation and I say that in particular from my point of view, based on the fact that I live in a jurisdiction where that's not required at all. And while I think I've learned a lot and I've benefited in you know many different ways from maintaining a portfolio, it kind of surprises me that there's no real follow-up. There's no real external guidance or critical analysis to try and figure out whether or not I'm doing things well. And in my case, I'm not that worried about it because I've done so much university-based post-professional education, but I do wonder about the individuals that are less experienced, that haven't had that program-based training, that mentoring from people that themselves have been mentored by experts, and then, of course, passed down that knowledge and experience over time. And building off that point, and perhaps my lead-in here already gives one of the answers that I think should be part of this question, and that is, do you have any specific input on what types of requirements generate more or less ideal portfolios? You know, that follow up can be one of them. And then you've already outlined a couple of different things here between who's writing the expectations. If you could piece them all together, like what would you say is the ideal style of portfolio?
2: I think to say there's an ideal style, because it's a very personal journey is difficult to say, but there are key components that you would need for certainly against the advanced practice portfolio, which which we're touching upon, which you quite rightly have highlighted. As I mentioned, the, the distinction between the two: so portfolio for registration, if it's ever asked for, someone can see that you've maintained a portfolio, so which is a range of information that supports your practice and means that you're trying to maintain contemporary practice to ensure that you're competent. And then there's the level seven, moving into advanced practice. And the ideal levels around this is firstly making sure there are multiple methods of knowledge translation applied. So you don't want a singular way of looking at a problem or singular way of looking at a part of your practice so we're looking for somebody who can p- apply multiple interpretations of an event and i've used that example of low back pain so somebody who talks very mechanistically or in a singular algorithm about both back pain well i do this then this happens we do this and then this happens wouldn't be at the level that we were looking for we're looking for someone who can assess correlation causation can apply the principles of critical analysis at a level seven method. So it can be very critical of the literature, can be critical of their own practice and bring those two elements together to provide an interpretation of best practice for that patient at that moment in time. So what I wouldn't want to see is somebody pulling just policies and protocols and having an awareness of that. That's part of it. But can you be critical about that? And can you bring best practice um, within your experience and bring different parts of the literature together to provide what is the best case analysis at that moment in time with the individual? You've then got to apply the other principles of advanced practice, so the leadership and the ability to be able to educate. So we would like to see, I would like to see references to those pillars of practice throughout a Maybe It may be a case study assessment. It could be a small literature review. It could be a a piece of reflection. It could be a piece of supervision they've had with their mentor. But it's that ability to reflect and reflect and deeply reflect backwards, again, is the measure of a very considerable portfolio. So we've got breadth, but we must also apply depth. So what I wouldn't want to see is numerous case studies that are shallow. I'd rather see A smaller number of case studies that show considerable depth and multiple lenses applied to a singular problem.
1: Thank you for that. I really like how you broke that down. And as a follow up or sidebar, within the profession of physiotherapy, let's say this type of portfolio was, or these types of portfolios were implemented in the process of trying to maintain continuing competency and registration what percentage of people would you envision doing one version versus the other? Of course, we all have to maintain registration and that's per my description earlier, clearly what I'm doing with the portfolio where I'm in practice. But because of those advantages of advanced practice, mentorship, et cetera, would you see that just being like a small portion, maybe that niche portion that goes on to get more advanced training? Or could that possibly be the type of thing that we incorporate into everyone's creation of a portfolio even for registration purposes
2: i think going forward when we look at the profession certainly again i can only really reference the uk with with a sufficient knowledge is to say that we've got registration and we've got advanced practice those two are very clearly defined as it stands at the moment but there is a space in between those there is descriptions happening within the uk such as the term enhanced practice, which is like a stepping stone between registration and advanced practice. We've also got the level of consultant practice, which sits over advanced practice. And that certainly the frameworks uh, are within England and there's development of portfolios and the support around how consultant practitioners justify their existence at a competency and capability level. So yeah, absolutely. So in answer to your question, as long as we can set levels of practice within our own profession, which should always be for clinicians to aspire to, therefore, is if you've got a standard, you can map the portfolio against that standard. So the number of standards applied would lead to the number of the portfolios that we would see in action. And if everybody was working to a standard, whether you apply that as a level of practice or it's a defined job role, however you want to do it, then in essence, everybody would be working to that portfolio or the next portfolio ahead of them, which would always give them something to work towards. And going back to our first part of the conversation, if you were a patient, what would you want your clinicians to be working to? Would you want them to be working to one portfolio, but it's a long way ahead? Or if you've got a young clinician who's looking after you, who's, who's registered, would you be expecting them to work to a portfolio that has a set standard and will be evaluated, Or would you be comfortable for them just to monitor their own selves? Well, I certainly would expect that individual to be monitored because I want to be assured as they would want to be assured that I'm gaining the best care within that interaction.
1: Excellent. That's super interesting to me. Thank you for the clarification on that. And moving forward, traditionally, as I'm sure our entire audience knows, one of the biggest components of post-professional education for a very long time have been things like conferences and weekend courses. This happens to be a particular topic that I've read quite a bit about in the past and like a lot of people I've participated in these events. My general understanding is that you can get really good information or really bad information from these venues in that one of the biggest disadvantages is they don't necessarily promote a change in the practice pattern of the individual. You leave for two days, you sit through a bunch of lecture or lab sessions, you go back, and the evidence I've read says you continue to practice in the same way that you did before. That having been said, can you talk to us about what some of the advantages are of implementing a portfolio system when you compare it to those more traditional weekend-based models.
2: So you're absolutely right. And I went through that stage whereby jobs next stage for me working in the National Health Service, your step into these newer roles where your application was supported by how many weekend courses you'd attended. You had no understanding as, a, as somebody who might be recruiting that individual whether A, those courses are of sufficient quality and being actually an application of learning and whether that's been Interpreted, critically assessed, and then developed as part of a development of practice. So you're right, there is a huge gap there. So, where a portfolio can be really valuable here is in two sides to that problem. Firstly, a portfolio, if part of a normal practice of continuing professional development under supervision by a mentor, can therefore lead to the identification of a training needs analysis. Your portfolio, whilst showing capability and competency, should also show where there is gaps in your knowledge or your gaps in your practice. Therefore, those gaps should be then targeted by any weekend courses, any conferences that you attend. So it becomes very purposeful rather than blanket, that looks like a nice conference, I'd like to go to it. You therefore are generating a model by which Gap analysis is followed by intervention of training. The second part to that is if you've identified that through your training needs analysis, which is very much part of any portfolio, your manager, your mentor, your supervisor is aware of the link between the two and therefore is ready on the back end of that to go through the critical evaluation of the learning. And over periods of time, your portfolio should be therefore developed to represent your learning, represent your interpretation of that course or that conference, and that can be signed off against a level seven framework. And therefore you can say, well, my learning needs analysis identified this gap. I attended this course, I then reviewed the, the work around the course. I reviewed my own practice, I had a peer review, I had a regular supervision assessments that critically assessed me against that learning. And I also reflected against that learning to basically attain a level of practice that fulfilled that gap in my learning that was identified six months prior to this. So without a portfolio framework and a supervision framework that gives you a a system by which you can be measured against, you're essentially attending without any interpretation or any change that you can demonstrate in your own practice. For me, the two have to go hand in hand.
1: That's excellent. I really like your closing there on the fact that they have to go hand in hand. That was the entire sentiment I was feeling when hearing you describe that. So yeah, we can use something like a portfolio or in the case of my past, a weekend course to maintain basic registration. But if you want or you need or you're trying to reach those higher levels, then you really have to intermingle the two. And to me, very interestingly and very personally, the portfolio plus the mentoring sounds like a different way of obtaining what I was exposed to during my university-based post-professional education. And I think that was particularly well described in your words when you talked about analyzing the gaps that each individual person Is possessing at present in their clinical practice, in their academic knowledge, and then using other resources like weekend courses to fill in those gaps. To me, that's very observational. It's very targeted. It's very individually based. And if it's done well, then it seems to me like that could be an absolutely wonderful model to move people forward within the profession to make sure they're getting back to the real basic point that we mentioned, which is are you benefiting your patients?
2: Yes. And the follow-up also, it challenges the individuals that run these two-day courses. They have to give more than just the certificate. So for example, what we've done here in the UK is we have a musculoskeletal advanced practice set of standards. And what we now ask Certainly, course providers that sit within our group, which is the MACP, Musculoskeletal Association of Chartered Physiotherapists, that if you're going to provide the course, your learning outcomes need to map against the competencies and capabilities within those standards. Now, we're not asking them to validate those individuals because those individuals need, if they're on a portfolio model, need to have a structure around them that validates them externally, normally through, as we mentioned, good mentorship. But what we can see is, does their course structure map against those standards? And if it doesn't, then why would we promote it or why would we support it? Just because someone says something works, this is my way of treating X, Y, or Z. And I'm going to then run a course and take 30 people and tell them all about it. But unless that maps to an agreed standard of practice that everybody can sign up to and everybody can see, we are in some ways deviating outside the model that we should be working within, which is a standard of practice that is supported by the evidence base. So whilst it also supports the individuals and maybe the managers and your supervisors in being purposeful in your training needs analysis, also for any individual wanting to look at these courses, have they mapped Can I look at your learning outcomes and do those learning outcomes make sense? Because the title and the agenda for the course may not give you the whole picture.
1: That was a great follow-up. Thank you for that. And just as one quick detail, I guess in particular for our audience, in case they don't know, the organization MACP that you mentioned is actually a sister organization to AOMT, which is through the International Federation of Orthopedic Manipulative Physical Therapists.
2: Absolutely. So we all sit under those standards that I was referencing are essentially the IFOM standards. The language has mildly changed to represent a more, let's say, a UK way of describing things. But essentially, those standards, which are level seven, internationally recognized, are the standards that we now apply for musculoskeletal practice in an advanced practice setting within the UK.
1: That's a really interesting development that I'm glad I'm learning about. And as we dive into this topic further, we've already talked a bunch about some of the potential advantages and utilities of working with different types of portfolio models. But are there any disadvantages that you see that we can also talk about?
2: The disadvantages of portfolios, I think are only really linked to the individual requirements at that time. So What I mean by that is some folk in certain times in your clinical career need a more structured, formal, taught program. And it might mean that you have to engage in that to start with before you're ready for a certain level of portfolio. So sometimes the portfolio model leaves you unconsciously incompetent without, A, the right structure and mentorship behind you. So you might think you're doing the right thing, you're building evidence, you're structuring your your learning, you're trying to map against certain levels of standards, but without the right structure around you, you may be very much in the dark. And that can be a disadvantage in the fact that much of your time would have been lost. So that really setting the scene with your supervisor or your mentor or whoever you describe it and looking at a learning needs analysis may mean that a structured route for certain parts of it or all of it is actually more beneficial for you. And then once you've done that, you build your portfolio on the basis of that learning you already received. So thinking about my own learning, I engaged on a master's degree four years after registration. And I think if I'd have been asked to try to build an advanced practice portfolio at that stage, I would have found that incredibly difficult. So having that actually time away from my own work, because you're trying to build a portfolio as you work at the same time. So those parallels can be quite difficult. The more experienced you are, that makes that easier, or the more time you're afforded can make it easier. But if those are a little bit conflicted, you may need to step away from your day-to-day job to really have time to reflect and develop your own skills. Outside your day-to-day work might be a more powerful route for you. But you can still maintain a portfolio of reflection. It's an ongoing model, but it doesn't hold all the evidence that you might require. But your knowledge of how to work a portfolio might then come into play at the end of that experience or at a different time in your career. So, supervision and mentorship and learning needs analysis to set you on the right path is absolutely the most important part of this model. Because if you don't, you may end up on a path and adding a lot of your own time into something that's not going to give you what you need back.
1: Perhaps not surprisingly, the potential biggest problem I see with that is the question, do we have enough post-professionally trained, highly qualified physiotherapists that could serve as the mentors and the points of guidance within the system to help the less experienced individuals work through that process and become more advanced practice physiotherapists?
2: And you've hit a nail squarely on the head, and that is a significant problem. We may need to look at technology algorithms to help people work through some of these questions to see where they might need to start. So that starting point could be through some sort of artificial intelligence to support you in some of the questions that you need have asked of you. We do have a problem with the numbers of advanced practitioners So therefore, we've got two ways to look at it. So we can either slowly increase that numbers and then the expectation of being an advanced practitioner is that you then go back in and become a mentor. And we put that in as a prerequisite. So that has a a slow build up. But the more that we mentor, the more that we get through these processes, obviously, the greater the spread will happen over a generation. The second thing is to think about maybe different models of mentorship. Maybe that with technology, we can do that in a large group setting. It doesn't have to always be one to one. And of course, we can use peer support with the right guidance quite effectively. So the mentors of tomorrow compared to the mentors of the past will have to be quite dynamic in the way that you look after a population. Now, for me, that would then demonstrate the next level of those individuals. I always feel that. Pre-advanced practice, you're managing a patient. And then your post-advanced practice, you start managing a population. You start influencing the clinicians of tomorrow, the policymakers, the function of healthcare. You start using those knowledge, skills and experiences outside the clinic. And those skills and experiences and knowledge may have to be applied to this conundrum, which is how do we get a small number of people influencing a large number of people?
1: And then presumably along the way, you have to take a look back and ask the questions, just like we have with other venues, such as the weekend courses and conferences that we talked about. Is the process working? Does it need to be tweaked or adjusted? Because if we fall into the same pattern where, yes, we have a portfolio, yes, we have mentoring, but there's some sort of flaw in the system or maybe the standards haven't been set properly, if we're not actually resulting in better trained, more capable professionals who can bring a better service to the patient population, then what do we do next? How do we alter it or what needs to replace it?
2: Yeah. And we have to be really brave about this and be critical ourselves as a profession. And maybe it it is time to wipe clean a little bit. And once you have a standard, if we've got a professional advanced practice standard that everybody signs up to, and what's happening in the UK is that the musculoskeletal standards, the Iform standards that we both have worked to, they are now agreed across a multi-professional network. So that's nursing, doctors, dietrists So anyone that has a role in musculoskeletal practice now has signed up to say, these are the standards that we will all work to. So once you start setting that as the bar, you can be more critical about some of those Educational models and educational processes that aren't going to be fit for purpose. So, we can really aggregate things and pull things together and get the most for less. If we're setting a conference ahead, we can really tailor it against these standards. So, folk and and, and organizations that don't work to those standards will end up, I guess, falling by the wayside. But that is a process of natural selection as we develop best practice for our patients. And our patients would want us to do that. We have to be critical of ourselves before we can even consider being critical of the the evidence.
1: I couldn't agree more on that. And another thing that just pops into my head, of course, is the fact that all of this can be quite expensive. I know if you look globally at the peer-reviewed scientific evidence, At least based on my reading of that evidence and years of looking at what do studies say when talking about the competence of us as professionals, not surprisingly, the profession that's done the most looking inward, they've performed the most studies, are physicians because their organizations have the most amount of resources. I imagine it's quite expensive to not just develop some of these processes, but then in the future to take a look back and say, how is it working well? How is it not working ideally and what can we do to change this so that we can bring the best end product to our patient populations?
2: My answer around that type of question, which is a really good question, is against, I guess, the relevance of our existence as physiotherapists. And what I mean by that we know we have an impact on patients when we have them face to face and we know we have an impact. We have literature to show impactful studies and, and certain interventions to work in a certain way can be helpful. However, when it comes to certainly here, public funding, we've got to show our population that pay taxes that we are impactful. And for me, that has to happen in two main areas, public health and return to work. If we can show that physiotherapy has an impact on those two areas, that will then, for me, determine that funding should follow the profession. The better the profession gets, the more impact you have on public health and the more impact you have on return to work. So socially and economically, the profession makes a difference. Now, if we show that that's the case, then improving the education of this group, us, Is only going to have a more positive impact on those two main societal conditions that really will impact people's lives across a population, then we are self-generating. So the challenge for the profession is to not look at necessarily localised interventions or localised treatments, but to talk about it much more widely in population-based health. And that's where our medical practitioners, in terms of let's say primary care, We know that they have an effect on these individuals and these groups, but we've got to start playing the same role at a national and international level that we start to create these changes. Even if it's small impact, that will have an enormous change because you are talking about whole population-based intervention.
1: I think those are great points. They're wise words, and I hope we can see some forward movement on that within the profession's locally, nationally, internationally, as you mentioned. That having been said, Dr. Langridge, this has been a truly informative and thought-provoking conversation. Thank you for bringing your expertise to the podcast and to our
2: audience. It's been a pleasure. Great to talk to you.
0: This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.